Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Cheltenham in the UK. Thanks for listening in. I want to say thank you at the start to Ed Hackey for his tireless efforts in producing this show. Thank you so much, Ed, for all that you do. Thanks also to Rebecca Terhune and Tommy Mullman for their help with marketing, media, and communications. If, uh, if you have the opportunity to give us a ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen in, that would be very much appreciated. Okay, on to the episode. Enjoy. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Erin Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, where I am a tutor in biblical studies. Our guest today is Professor Philip Ziegler, whose book, Militant Grace, tackles foundational questions resulting from what he calls the apocalyptic turn in Christian theology. Now, Phil's book encompasses a dizzying array of Christian theologians, from Luther and Calvin to Kierkegaard and Barth and Bonhoeffer, and somehow he even manages to be conversant with biblical scholars like Ernst Kazemann and J. Lewis Martin and John Barclay and Beverly Gaventa. Phil, we are really delighted that you could join us today. Welcome to OnScript. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. So off the bat, it's important to define the terms of our discussion, especially since a term like apocalyptic is, as I've actually said before on our podcast, a nebulous term, even among its adherents, and it's a downright contentious term in some circles. So, Phil, what do you mean by apocalyptic? Sure. Yeah, you're certainly right about that. Um, for purposes of, of, of the, the book, um, I've taken the term apocalyptic up as a term of art, as I found it used by a collection of Pauline scholars, some of whom you've named, Beverly Gaventa, Lou Martin, and others, um, who have found it a useful term to capture um, something fundamental about the nature of Paul's witness to the gospel. Um, and I, I understand, as you say, that in biblical studies, the use of that term is a hotly contested thing, whether it, it applies best and only to the genre of writings or a, a genre of uh, ancient writings, or uh, whether or not it can be used in the way that they use it. Um, I'm quite happy to sit reasonably light on that. Uh, I find it useful as a term to capture something which I'm sure theologically we could find other words for. I mean, you could use the word eschatological to express much of what's here, but there, the, there's a kind of forcefulness to the term apocalyptic, which I find helpful, and um, an evocation of some, something of the of the character of the events that are at stake uh, in in what Paul wants to say about the nature of um, God's saving activity in Jesus Christ that I find useful. Um, it's a it's an evocative term. Uh, it it is a little unnerving, which is also not a bad thing at the start of a conversation. It invites the question, "What are you possibly talking about?" Um, and that at least is a question uh, which we can follow on from. So. Um, in other conversations I've had, I've been happy to, to sort of say that if if there were other language that were possible to to uh, express as concisely as as the term apocalyptic does, what's going on here, um, I'd I'd be happy to use them. And uh, so I'm not wedded to it as a kind of essential piece of language, but I do find it very very helpful. Um, and uh, uh, for just those kinds of reasons, that that it. It expresses, it draws attention to something fundamental about what, what Paul is uh, saying and doing with the gospel, and um, 
it's a it's a hook on which I can hang the the number of of specifically theological aspects about his witness, which I find are are so important for th- my own thinking theologically at the minute. Sure, and that's exactly what you're trying to do in this book is to hang various other aspects of Christian doctrine on this um, apocalyptic framework that you, as you say, um, is a useful way of describing Paul's. Um, Paul's version of the gospel. Um, and I think that's exactly how I've heard um, Beverly and um, John Barclay use that term, that it's not necessarily one wedded to genre, but it's one that um, they find useful as a theological concept to um, encompass what Paul is doing. I think Douglas... Yeah, just so. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> just so. No, I was going to say, I mean, it's um, to, to take it as a synonym, which of course it is even in translation, of the of the term revelation um, is is exactly right, and um, what it allows me to uh, to lift up from Paul and then to think about theologically is the character of that revelation as both a disclosure, true, but uh, uh, even more fundamentally an event that affects uh, and determines the nature of reality itself. Um, so it's it's uh, the language of Revelation tends to tip towards the epistemic side, um, uh, which is, of course, integral to what's at stake here. But even more fundamentally, I think, for Paul, is the thought that um, uh, the the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is an event which uh, uh, changes everything, an event around which time and space, uh, the cosmos itself, turns. Um, And so it's the eventful character of that, the reality determining character of that event, the effectiveness of that event. Uh, All of those things, I think, can be expressed under the rubric of revelation, obviously. Uh, uh, But the language of apocalyptic really helps to bring that out, right? Whatever else an apocalypse is, it's something that makes something happen, right? It's a a happening, an occurrence. Um, So that particular piece of of the meaning of the word, I find, uh, extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, I think that's a helpful distinction too, to distinguish the event that then determines epistemology and everything else from just a, a category of epistemology uh, where we somehow realize something that was always there. That's definitely not the the focus of an apocalyptic um, theology. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. The other language which I've I, I've I've sort of imagined you could use is you could you could put this whole thing under the rubric of Advent, right? The arrival of God, the coming of God, the appearance of God. I mean, all of those terms are the, are are ones which I would think um, are in the kind of cloud, the linguistic conceptual cloud that I'm trying to 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 use the word apocalyptic here to to capture, and they all have that force of. Um, uh, the arrival of something uh, new and unheard of that changes the circumstance in 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 which we find ourselves, uh, and what whatever else Paul thinks about the gospel, I think he certainly thinks that. Mm, mm. And you write about this apocalyptic turn with, and you speak about it uh, with a great deal of conviction. Um, so, how did you get interested in the apocalyptic turn, and and why do you think that this issue, this framework, is such an essential one? perhaps the essential one for Christian theology. Sure. So um, my own kind of encounter with it, I suppose, w- w- feels a bit happenstance. Uh, uh, I, I hadn't really come across it as a student in uh, theology uh, in t- t- 
Toronto, where I did all of my, my work in the 1990s. Um, and, but I spent a year at the University in Princeton at the uh, Center for the Study of Religion on a postdoctoral placement in 2001-2002. The purpose of my time there was to write a a series of papers on Paul Lehman, the theological ethicist who had taught for a time at a number of places, Harvard, Princeton, and also at Union in his later days. Um, And while I was there, his papers were deposited in the seminary archive relatively recently, and I was working through his, uh, uh, his literary legacy there, I was keen to meet people who knew him. Uh, and in the course of, of encountering these people around um, in the northeast part of the U.S. there, I met, among others, Christopher Morse, who at that point was still professor of uh, theology at Union Seminary, who had been very, very close to, to Lehman. Uh, and Christopher is a very hospitable guy. Everyone who knows him will know what I mean. Um, he, he was keen not only to kind of speak to me about Lehman, but also to be sure that I met other people who knew him. And so he uh, and I traveled up on the train to New Haven one afternoon to meet Dorothy and Lou Martin, who were living there in their retirement at that point. And um, Lou, as you've other guests you've had in the past, have told you uh, stories about one of Lou's great gifts was to connect people who he thought needed to be together. Uh, and so after I had met him, I... I, I, I had a series of other people kind of contact me saying Lou Martin said we have to get together and talk, including Bev- Beverly and Susan Eastman and others. Um, and so those kind of personal contacts have been a way in which I've, I've been led in, into the, the discussion uh, in that particular way. I think materially, um, what, what caught my eye about it initially was um, the way in which it um, uh, s- suggests that there's a, a, a way of understanding Paul that puts the radicality of divine grace at the very heart of the matter again. Um, and this, from my theological point of view, was uh, an extraordinary, exciting proposition. Um, and the way in which it does that, of course, was new to me. The, the, all the, the sort of interest in the, in the cosmological and the, the turning of the ages and the three-agent drama, the sort of features that are the hallmarks of a lot of that scholarship. Um, these were novelties to me, things I was excited to get my head around, to sort of contemplate. Um, and the more that I did that, the, the more I found that, they, that this idiom really did help to, what, to communicate the force of Paul's understanding of grace and its radicality um, in a way that other ways of speaking about these matters that I had kind of acquired through the years and had, had become commonplace for me um, uh, were unable to do. Um, and so w- w- the wager of the book, uh, kind of as it's emerged over a decade, essentially, has been a, a series of attempts to think about what it might look like to take systematic theological responsibility for these kinds of de- 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 developments in Pauline studies. Um, it, and I suppose um, part of the essential character of that, or w- w- why it's so, sort of a burden that, that I felt needed to be picked up, is that um, Protestant theology in particular, I'm, I've come out of the Reformed side of the Christian tr- tradition, uh, Protestant theology in particular is um, exposed, I think in a particularly strong way, to developments in understanding Paul. Right? I mean, some of the basic convictions at the root of those traditions in their distinctiveness uh, understandings of, of grace and faith and justification and election and so on, sort of Paul's suite of soteriological um, uh, 
convictions and uh, commitments, those categories are particularly exposed to changes in the way that we read Paul. Right? Um, and whatever else Protestant theology is, I s- suppose, in my view, it's the kind of theology that wants to hear Paul aright. Um, not only Paul, clearly, but in, w- with a particular kind of intensity, Paul. Um, and so the thought that these sorts of developments in Pauline ex- exegesis put real pressure on the traditional ways of thinking and speaking about soteriological matters in particular uh, seemed to me something that really just couldn't be be bypassed. Right? Um, and so the 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 work that's gathered together in the book uh, is essentially my attempt just to think through some of that pressure and to try to th- think about uh, and to uh, explore what might happen if we took this way of reading Paul seriously. What kinds of things might we need to say differently about our understanding of salvation, about the the nature of Jesus Christ, about our understanding of space and time, um, so on, so on, so on. So to kind of trace out the doctrinal consequences of an adjusted or a a revolutionized, perhaps, depending on your point of view, reading of Paul. Um, So I think that's kind of where where it comes from in human terms as well. But materially, um, it's, it's, it's theology's exposure in particular to to the importance of Paul's witness to the um, to the soteriological core of Christian faith, that I, I suppose made it um, in, uh, unavoidable for me, at least as a as a the- the- theological thinker, to to work with with this new understanding of Paul in this way. Um, I might say also that, uh, as I noted in the introduction, the the, the we, um, we we struck up a group of, of us that met for and still does uh, around the edges of the ARSPL um, from time to time, uh, explorations in theology and apocalyptic. And one of the things that was exciting about that for me was it put kind of biblically minded theologians and theologically minded biblical studies people together to talk in a way that I really covet and which I hadn't been all that good at cultivating before that. Um, And the opportunity to think about these things collectively and in a collaborative way has been one of the real both delightful and important aspects of this work f- for me. So I, the book is really, I mean, it's I've, it's got my name on the front, but it really does reflect a series of insights which have been won from uh, a decade's worth of corporate conversation. So I'm I'm grateful to 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 that group in particular and the people who have who've been involved in it over the years for their their stimulation and provocation mm. for sure. And what a neat, yeah, what a neat project to be a part of. Um, and one of the reasons that I was so excited about your book is that attention to not only these, I mean, as you say, the influence of Paul on these obviously massively influential Protestant thinkers um, going back, <laughs> uh, obviously, well, millennia at this point, um, but also you're just, you're careful um attention to what's what's actually happening in Paul's writings themselves. And uh, I attribute that um, to your skill as a theologian who's attuned, but also to, yes, as you say in this introduction, it's very clear that these, these theological ideas have been um, carefully cultivated in close conversation with biblical scholars. And I think likewise, when I read someone like um, Beverly Gavento or Susan Eastman or John Barclay, you see the influence um, of good theologians um, and sound theological thinking. So I, I personally, as a, as a young scholar who um, kind of came up with uh, you know, J. Lewis Martin being my, my hero that I've never met, um, and Beverly Gaventa being someone who um, 
yeah, who I can look at her writings and say these are the these are these are the reasons that I'm excited about biblical studies, um, and it's it is precisely because they seem to to pay such close attention to the theological implications of their exegesis. So I just I, I want to say thank you for for just the careful work of a of a group like that, and it's clearly evident in this book too. Oh well, that's very kind. The the um. Th- the benefit for me of uh, thinking in, in running conversation with um, the kinds of New Testament scholars um, whose names you've mentioned there um, has been essentially to be taken back to school on the importance of Paul in particular, but the Bible more g- g- generally for the work of doing Christian dogmatics. Um, there are all kinds of ways, of course, in which one could conceive that the task of thinking doctrinally um, and uh, the idea that uh, that, that doctrinal uh, reflection needs to be, should be, must be riveted to the Bible, um, and uh, and looking to refresh and renew itself by that consistent, fresh exposure um, is something that this whole endeavor has sort of convinced me of again. If I had uh, lost that sensibility previously, um, I should say I feel I do feel uh, that I'm I'm sort of reaching outside my comfort zone in a lot of places here. Um, I mean I. As anyone does in a, a uh, extended theological education, had a fair amount of training in in the biblical study side of things, but um, I don't count myself an exegete of any uh, uh, significance whatsoever. And so I'm, I realize that I'm particularly reliant on the scholarship of others. But that seems to to be the way that things both kind of can and ought to be done. Right. Um, so it's uh, uh, it's been a great joy to to have, have had my theological thinking kind of pulled back into proximity with the Bible and kind of held there in a way that I'd like to think would be a mark of, of the rest of my work going forward as well. Hmm. Hmm. So what I didn't mention in our introduction is that Philip actually has a long pedigree in theology. Uh, he holds, I think I counted five degrees total or some, something like that from the University of Toronto, University of St. Michael's College, then Victoria University, University of Toronto some more. Um, and you're also ordained uh, to the order of ministry in the United Church in Canada. Um, and you were a junior fellow then at Massey College. And you did, as you mentioned, this postdoc at Princeton before you taught I think a stint at Atlantic School of Theology, and then you finally have migrated to the University of Aberdeen, where you now hold a personal chair in Christian dogmatics. That's a that's a pretty um, illustrious career path. So, what sets you on this path in the first place to becoming a professional theologian? That's interesting. I uh, I didn't imagine that this was was my vocational direction of travel um, when I got to. To the end of my high school studies, uh, I started my my university work actually at the Royal Military College in Canada, which is the sort of equivalent. It's a tri-service college, a bit like West Point for all three services. And um, uh, I was training to be an artillery officer and studi- studying English as my degree. Um, a couple of years into the program, I I realized I had made a kind of vocational error of a significant size. And so um, left that program and moved sideways to finish my undergraduate studies in um, what I thought was to be English literature at the University of Toronto. Um, it turned out that uh, transferring to the University of Toronto uh, was a complicated business, and it was easier for me to finish in religious studies than it was in in, in English. So that's what I did, um, in part because I was excited to go to, to go there for two reasons. One was uh, to to have the chance to 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 be close to Emmanuel College uh, and the Toronto School of Theology more 
generally, which is where I subsequently went on to do my theological training, but just to be there as an undergraduate, to be close to that and to get a chance to suss out what was going on there and what kind of educational opportunities there were, uh, because at that point I, I was working through our churches, did discernment processes for ministry. Um, and then also to have a chance to, to take um, the undergraduate courses that uh, the literary critic Northrop Fry was teaching still at that point in Toronto on the Bible and Western culture. These were famous um, courses, and I had read Northrop Fry's work, The Great Code, and, and related works as a teenager, um, and had been really struck by his sense of how um, how lively and important the Bible was for just understanding the the cultural world in which we lived, and I was excited to, to be able to, to take those courses with him. Those courses were actually taught as religious studies courses, and so uh, uh, that's partially why I, I, I ended up following that that route. But at the end of that that degree, I um, I had discerned a call to ministry in the United Church of Canada, and so I, I stayed on at Emmanuel College there and pursued the MDiv degree with, with that pastoral uh, horizon in mind. Uh, one of the things about the, the Toronto School of Theology is the scale of it, sort of seven or eight colleges all in a federation, this ecumenical kind of melting pot. It was a fabulous place to study when I was there. And um, you could also c combine uh, academic study and pastoral training. So I did a, 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 a joint MAM-DIV because I, I was interested in the academic, the intellectual side of the Christian tradition. And I wasn't quite sure, you know, which of those trajectories I might be better suited to make a, con a contribution to. And so I did the, those two degrees in joint thinking by the time I get to the end, I'll, I'll know which way this is going to break. And I didn't know when I got to the end. So I just kept going. Um, I had opportunities to carry on to do my PhD work in Toronto. And I did that. Um, David Dempson, there, one of my primary supervisors, uh, John Webster and George Schnur were also teaching there at the time. And they so fabulous teachers and very encouraging um, folks. And I uh, I did a project there on um, the East German theologian Wolf Krutke, um, who was a, a living theologian at the time I was writing. Um, he had been one of the leading figures in the East German theological community uh, during the communist period. And I was intrigued by um, what had happened to Protestant theology, the kind of developments that Protestant theology had, had undergone under those conditions of radical, aggressive secularization. Um, the thought being that the kinds of lessons that had been learned in that context uh, under immense secular pressure might be of real value to those of us who were uh, thinking and pastoring in a place like Canada, where the concern about secularization as the horizon of church life was a real thing. So um, that project was a great one. I enjoyed it a lot. And um, then I had the chance to pursue this postdoctoral placement, as I mentioned, in Princeton. And um, the interest in Paul Lehman was was uh, related to my sort of interest in, in um, Christianity and public life. So in fact, the, the the grant program that took me there was was a series of funded uh, postdocs on uh, uh, public theology in America was the rubric that uh, the funding was under. And so I was reading Lehman with a view to the way that theology engages with public issues and takes responsibility for public matters. He was a sort of theological ethicist with a particular interest in, in the political uh, and and the wider world. Um, the, the chance to teach at, at, at AST consolidated my, both my ecumenical interests and then also the, there too, a very small department. I think by the time I joined the staff, we were seven or eight. And so you had both lots of scope to teach because lots of things needed doing and you were there. And so you, you did them. Um, 
but it also meant that we worked very closely together with colleagues in other sub-disciplines. You couldn't afford to be precious about uh, that. And so um, lots of, of um, uh, very happy and fruitful encounters with New Testament colleagues, people working in related kinds of fields. So I like to think that my interest in, in, in the keeping the proximity of biblical study and theology together emerged in part from that time in Halifax. Um, and it's certainly been a feature here in um, Aberdeen over the years, too. We've had uh, th uh, New Testament scholars here who have been interested in the theological in ways that have been very open. Francis Watson was on the staff when, when I joined and was my original mentor here. Uh, and the theologically, too, the people who I've who I have and continue to work with here are also very interested in that conversation. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a good environment to work in. I feel really blessed by by all of that. Hmm. Um, and if a lot of our um, our our Onscript listeners are either uh, students theologi in theological education uh, of some stage, or they are early career um, people, kind of like me. Um, I guess we're the podcast generation. So. <laughs> um, but if you if you had any, one piece of advice to give people who are starting out, what what words of wisdom would you have? Oh, that's tricky. Um, a s single piece of advice: um, chase the th chase the questions you love. Um, it's 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 a real privilege to have time and space to think about these sorts of matters of. Um, real, even ultimate concern. And there's a whole lot about life that uh, uh, conspires to crowd that out. Um, and so to the extent that, that you find yourself g given opportunities by virtue of being enrolled in programs or engaged in conversations with colleagues or the opportunity to pursue uh, study or reflective opportunities to really identify and to dig in on the questions that really animate you in your own um, theological reflection. You should really take those up. Um, they're fleeting opportunities often, and they are really pressurized increasingly. So um, I, it's you, you, university life, just like um, uh, parish life, um, uh, does a lot to crowd out, uh, perhaps surprisingly, um, space for, for, for reflective thought. And so um, trying to find ways to get elbow room to, to continue that. Um, yeah, and being willing to, 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 to uh, stick with the questions that really animate you. Um, I mean, there's lots of interesting questions out there in the world, um, but if you find a channel of thinking that you th that you really find um, you're convinced is important and fruitful, whether for your ministry or for your teaching or for some combination of the two. Um, uh, being able to sort of d uh, uh, hold hold that row, as they say over here uh, in in Britain, at kind of at length and patiently is a real uh, uh, is something well well worth doing for sure. Hmm. Hmm. So let's get back to the book then. Um, in the opening sentences of this book, as we've already talked about, you point to J. Lewis Martin as sort of a preeminent figure in the apocalyptic turn. Obviously, not only in biblical studies, but as um, as you've shown in theology. Um, so what impact um, has J. Lewis Martin had, help me understand as a biblical scholar, on theology in particular? Sure. So um, let me speak just for for me, um, I think the ideas that come from from Lou's work that have been most important for me theologically are the way in which his interpretation of Paul um, draws attention to a number of features of Paul's gospel, which are of decisive importance for um, uh, the content of Christian doctrine and also the form of its presentation. 
So, um, for instance, um, one of the things that, that Lou draws attention to time and time again in his readings of Paul is the way that Paul um, con construes of the, of the business of salvation as what he calls a three-agent drama, right? So it's typical for us um, uh, to often to think of the, the work of salvation as a transaction between God and the human creature, a kind of two-agent drama, two, two players on this stage God's doing something, humans are doing something, and uh, whatever you want to say ab ab about the outworking of salvation, it has those two agencies involved. Okay. Um, there's much, of course, to recommend about that. Lou's su suggestion, though, that we don't do justice to Paul's account of the gospel if we don't see him telling a story in which not only two agents are involved in the business of salvation, but a third agent, um, and and a third agent whose uh, whose role is m much more fundamental than you might have imagined, uh, and that, of course, is 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 the sort of the role of the inimical powers. Uh, Lou tends to call them the anti-God powers, sometimes with capitals. Um, uh, the, 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 there's a kind of Pauline triumvirate of sin, death, and the devil. Right? That, uh, that I, I use that sometimes in the book as a shorthand for this, this suite of sort of inimical powers. The idea that those, the agency of those powers um, and their enmity, both vis-a-vis -vis God and therefore vis-a-vis -vis God's good creatures, um, is baked into the understanding of the gospel in a way that such that if we don't do justice to it theologically, we're, we're simply not doing justice to Paul's witness. Um, that, that had never really struck me uh, with the force that it has since um, my, my sort of encounter with Lou's work. Um, and trying to take responsibility for that particular insight uh, is, is no easy thing. I mean, of course, there's lots of theological discourse in the tradition about the role of the devil and other kinds of things. Of course, that devil's not a particularly... Um, uh, uh, he, it's not a particular theme which is highly amenable to modern sensibilities. Um, so so it, it raises all kinds of really interesting and frankly quite tricky theological questions about how, what it would mean to talk about these, the, this third agent um, uh, clearly, uh, responsibly. I mean, both, and by responsibly there, I, I mean, on one hand, responsible to the biblical witness um, and it's sort of uh, uh, the, the contours of, of, of its witness to these powers. Uh, and then also to think responsibly about how, how those powers figure in a wider understanding of Christian doctrine and testimony. So, um, so that the third, the three agent drama feature is one of the things which is, which I think has really put pressure on me personally. And I think others too, um, uh, to think about, uh, or to, to change the way we think theologically about the business of salvation. Sure. One of the things that and, things that that means. Yep. Please oh, go on. And I just, I, I just wanted to interject there. He has this phrase that you pick up that fits pretty well with the, um, this idea of three agents that, that, um, that the world has been twice invaded. And that's a pretty important, um, foundational, piece of the framework that you're laying out in the book. So I wondered if you could um, talk about what you mean and maybe what Martin means when he says that the world has been twice invaded in relation to these anti-God powers and the three-agent yeah. drama. Yeah, good. So the, the, uh, the, the world as such, the product of divine creation, um, uh, has a history. So one of the things that, that, that Lou's account of Paul suggests is that there's a, we don't think of the world on that quite properly with Paul unless we think of it in, in this historicized way. There's a story to tell about the world. And that story includes two moments of catastrophic intervention. Um, the first is is the eruption of sin into the world. Um, and sin here is understood uh, not so much as um, 
the kind of moral uh, turpitude of of uh, of individual human beings or even human beings taken in their collectivity, but uh, as a as a power external to human beings to which they succumb, right? Um, and 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 that's why, in terms of the grammar with which it's spoken of, sin, death, and the devil keep close company in. Paul's work, right? Sin is a kind of agent, um, uh, 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 external to the human being, um, uh, an agent whose power is uh, is such that the human being cannot, on its own terms, resist that power. Uh, a power that literally invades the creation. It's it's it doesn't belong there, right? It's not part of the good creation. It's alien. It's properly alien to it. It, it has no proper place. Um, it's not to be kind of reasoned with or accommodated or rationalized. It's and its structure is sheer negativity, right? It's just it's it's profoundly inimical to the goodness of God and to the goodness of God's creatures and their and their their flourishing. So that invasion remakes the world as Lou puts it right in one in in sort of one stage um he then speaks about paul's understanding of what god does in jesus christ as a second invasion so this language of invasion is he's he's fond of it um uh what it's trying to capture then then again is that the 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 uh, the working the the outworking of saving grace in in Jesus Christ is not a kind of um, natural emergence from the flow of history. It doesn't just kind of happen uh, as a result of the imminent processes of the unfolding of things, but rather um, uh, God um, arrives on the scene, as it were, in a new and unanticipated way um, in Jesus Christ to um, uh, to. Uh, again, his language, you find it in Kesemon to to reclaim that creation which has been uh, falsely lorded over by sin. Um, and so you can hear already in, in his idiom the kind of martial metaphors that, that are so common here. Um, the, what that, the, one of the things that that does, uh, I think, theologically for us is it... Uh, it, it, is, is it helps us to uh, to rethink again the way we think about sin, this idea of sin as a... Uh, as a as an inimical power, a third thing, which is not just this kind of, the kind of uh, consequences of human finitude and folly, though no doubt those things are are weaponized by sin, to be sure. Um, but uh, sin as a uh, as a, as a genuinely third uh, and in some ways um, utterly alien uh, agent in the midst of of the creation. Um, it puts themes like lordship on the table again, right? Um, one of Kesemann's great questions, who is the lord of this world? Um, so the thought that there's a contest going on uh, bet- between this uh, you kind of the usurpatious power of sin uh, and the rightful lordship of God, um, and that the human creature is, whatever it is, it is in the midst of that struggle, right? Uh, and uh, and that the business of divine salvation is to redeem, um, to liberate creatures out from under the lordship of sin, uh, the false lordship of sin, and to restore them to the uh, the proper lordship um, of the God who is their creator, redeemer, and savior. So that 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 way of thinking it puts the it puts the motifs of redemption and liberation at the front of the way we think about soteriology. There's a chapter in the uh, in the book, which uh, concentrates on that and suggests that you can think about reconciliation as a moment internal to this wider uh, account of redemption, uh, so that we don't have to lose 
side of themes of guilt and forgiveness and whatnot, but that the major motif, the kind of leading and coordinating motif, um, is in fact redemption out from under the uh, usurpatious, usurpatious lordship of sin. Um, that for me has been one of the really exciting bits of, of sort of lose theological consequences. That, and again, those those themes have been at um, uh, they've been at work in the tradition, of course, o o over time. And so they're not sheer novelties, but the way that Lou um, and those who are thinking in and around that that's that apocalyptic reading of Paul uh, uh, come on to Paul is that they really do help to to bring those themes to the surfaces ones which which in my mind require uh, uh, important theological reception and then sort of uh, uh, the the consequences of that reception um, lead us in all kinds of interesting and I think I hope fruitful directions in in rethinking and re republishing the basic shape of the Christian message. So if I can play devil's advocate for just a minute then, um, given that we're talking about sin, death, and the devil, uh, hopefully I don't embody those things all the time, but maybe just right for this month, minute. And um, I ask this question because I, I am drawn to apocalyptic theology, and I presented a paper uh, that gave a fairly apocalyptic reading of a passage in Galatians, and um one of the members of my seminar and friend, Murray Ray, uh, said, I think this is an interesting reading, but I have a problem with this language of invasion and battle uh, because it makes it sound like God, there was a time when God somehow lost his sovereignty and, um, and wasn't actually sovereign over his creation. So I have a problem with this because it sounds like he's coming to creation that was not somehow already his. So how do we answer that objection um, in a way that does justice to other texts where we don't necessarily find the militant language that we do in, say, Galatians? Yeah, 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 no, sure. So that, of course, is a, that, that, that's a genuine and a, and a, and a very apt th theological consideration. Um, let me take a step back and, and I'll, I'll come at the question like this. So one of the things that I think this way of, re of reading Paul requires us to ask is what kind of dualists Christians have to be? Um, and uh, this question, in the way that Murray put it to, to you, helps us to clarify one of the kinds of dualists which we're not to be. And that is a kind of, there is no, uh, this way of reading Paul does not commit us to a kind of dualist dualism of origin or a kind of originary dualism that would pit sort of God and anti-God as two equivalent uh, divine powers contesting over a creation or something. Um, that's, yes, that's right. Yeah, we're not committed down that line. Um, that's for sure. Um, but what we are, I think, c committed to is is the view that in the midst of the good creation, um, uh, 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 over which God is properly provident, um, the, there is an inexplicable, um, um, un, uncoordinatable uh, eruption of uh, opposition to God, um, which runs and runs and runs. And uh, why it runs is, I think, beyond the ken of, of, of faith. That it runs is both the witness of Scripture and, I think, uh, uh, something which illumined by scripture we can read off our our experience of the world in a certain sense as well so that there is opposition to god in the world 
and indeed in ourselves, that uh, that 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 um, opposition is is an object of God's concern, uh, is an object of God's uh, uh, sovereignty for sure. But the 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 mode of that sovereignty, the mode in which God s- seems to want to um, to confront and to encounter that uh, eruption of opposition, is precisely um, uh, through the outworking of salvation in Christ in the way that 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 um, that we read. And so, um, one of the the consequences of of this way of thinking for me has been to pull to pull the doctrine of providence ever more closely to the doctrine of salvation itself. That we um, uh, and that does put pressure on the on the doctrine of providence. I mean, it's it's not quite so easy as you know as Murray's question suggests to say um, uh, uh, kind of in a comfortable. Um, Untroubled way um, uh, that divine governance uh, simply means that this way, this sort of disruption at the heart of creation, is not a real thing, or not something that needs to be taken seriously, or the kind of thing that that one could be relaxed about, or what what have you. There are a whole series of possibilities which are simply ruled out of bounds there, um, and th- that the mode of God's providence is is best understood and illumined kind of reflexively from the way that salvation itself is worked out. Um, so that we don't, the, the worry that we, we might, we might be able to cultivate a kind of abstract account of providence, which, which floats relatively free of the way we understand sal- salvation. That's part of what, of what causes that disjunction. Um, so I suppose for me, the, the idea of, the discourse of invasion, uh, of eruption, of advent, even right, that God kind of comes to the world uh, in Jesus Christ, doesn't so much suggest um, absence as it suggests the effective appearance in time and space of the God who wills to uh, save His good creation, to save the good creation, precisely by the uh, overturning of this um, uh, 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 usurpatious power. Um, that that is the mode in which God provides, as it were, right? That the mode of divine governance is precisely the, the mode of salvation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Murray's point 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 is a good one. There's a kind of, but there is a kind of dualism to to which I think Christians are c- c- committed, you know. Um, and I'm not sure that we're committed to to ascribe um, uh, the work of sin uh, in the world or the work of sin, death, and and the devil in our experience of faith, um, uh, uh, precisely because of its inimical character, we're, we're, we're not obliged to ascribe it to divine providence, right? Um, I mean, it's, I think it's entirely within our right, uh, and indeed perhaps an obligation for Christians to confess that there are things that happen in the world which are simply not willed by God, right? That, that God has a will with reference to those things, but, but God's will with reference to those things is their contradiction. Uh, uh, and uh, that I know is there's there's much to think about there theologically to be sure. But I, as a starting point, I, I think this this understanding of Paul's gospel kind of has reawakened that sense that that uh, it's important uh, for for Christian theology to 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 acknowledge the those the the fact of. Um, that which God does not will in the midst of the world. Um, of course, how 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 to think that through theologically, how to work, work it out doctrinally. But I think that's that's the burden that I think this work puts theologians like like 
you and I under. Um, and I think that's th th those are the right kind of problems to have, uh, precisely because they're the problems that arise from taking this account of the gospel seriously. Yeah, and I, and that, I have to say, that's one of the things that I'm most drawn to in terms of this apocalyptic framework, is that it actually gives you vocabulary to, to call evil, evil. Um, and we don't have to give an account, or at least this gives us a way of saying that there are things, uh, working that out theologically is obviously more complicated, but there are things that are antithetical to the will of God. Um, and pastorally and existentially, that's an important, um, an important question. So if we change directions, really, actually 180 degrees, Phil, are you ready for your first speed round? Oh gosh, okay. Bring okay, okay, that's, okay. That's... They're off the wall questions. The rules are that you put you answer the first thing that comes into your head, and you don't have to give us any, any explanation for it. And there is no judgment, no matter what you say. Okay, maybe there's some judgment on some questions, but not. <laughs> just kidding. Um, okay, so here we go. If you could be any animal in the world, what would you be? A badger. <laughs> you didn't see that coming. I know. <laughs> No, and I'm okay, and I'm I'm laughing because we had we had um, a close encounter with two badgers in our garden um, a couple of nights ago, and I didn't realize this, but when you get close to a badger, they hiss, <laughs> like, and it's really unnerving, uh, and I hope to never confront one again. So I. Okay, well, I put badgers in the category of sin, death, and the devil, but, um, okay. you know, good for you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, okay, uh, what is your favorite work of either fiction or nonfiction outside of theology? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think one of my favorite fictional titles of all time um, is, well, what? I'm quite an avid reader, so... So, so the, there, there are lots of novels to, to which I'm devoted. Um, I think I really enjoyed reading the, the Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. Um, the, that was one of my first exposures to sort of um, uh, European writing, uh, and I I found that found it very artful and just winsome and uh, and engaging. And I've enjoyed reading his work ever since. Yeah. You know, I think you can tell when um, people who write in theology are avid readers of, like, good fiction or nonfiction, because your your writing in this book is exquisite, and I think you can tell when people are avid readers by how well they write in, in theology, so that's that's really encouraging. Um, okay, uh, I've just moved, so I'm keen to get an immigrant perspective. What is the biggest adjustment that you faced when you moved from Canada to Scotland? Hmm. Um, we were talking beforehand, actually, I, I, I think it's the scale of things here in, uh, the UK, um, coming from Canada, um, everything is just a little bit bigger. Well, actually quite a bit bigger. Um, distances are bigger, um, kind of homes, cars, roads, sidewalks, everything just kind of that much, that much larger. There's just that much more space. Life here ha has a kind of, um, uh, everything is close to one another, uh, in ways which are good, but also take some adjusting to. Um, yeah, I, I think I was estimating when we were chatting before that the scale of life here is about two thirds as big as, as, as everything back home. Well, one of the nice things about that is that, and this really has been a difference, which I've appreciated is that, um, you know, within three hours by train, 
you're three, three, three and a half hours by train. There are four or five um, uh, large theological faculties, you know, St. Andrews, Edinburgh, Durham, Glasgow, um, uh, and the opportunities for theological collaboration and conversation in this part of the world are, um, are really, uh, um, uh, they're what importantly augmented and, and, and it's just so, so easy to, to get together to talk to people. Um, that is a glorious thing. I mean, are, are we left our time in Halifax, but the distance between the seminary in Halifax, um, and the kinds of the other kinds of places where you might find people t- to talk to about your, your work. Um, it took some doing put it that way. Um, so yeah, the, the, the compaction of life here in Scotland has taken some some adjusting to, but it's also been a blessing. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Uh, I haven't driven our car since January, uh, and everything takes less time to clean. But we also, <laughs> but we also, because we have small children, have stuff just everywhere, <laughs> and mm. that's taken some good news too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could I venture just another one in case this is better? Um, uh, as a reply to your question, the the climate here in Scotland is obviously different than the one that I was accustomed to back home in Canada. It's a this is a one coat climate. Uh, I literally wear the same jacket twelve months of the year, and uh, it rarely gets below zero for any length of time, and it rarely gets above twenty for any length of time. Um, and so, yeah, so we I mean we do have seasons, but it, but but uh, without extremes, and that that takes some getting used to as well. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I've um, I. I'm not used to winter here yet. I grew up in Minnesota. We have winter there. Um, and I had lots of coats. That's true. That's a that's an apt one. Okay. Um, what is something that you find embarrassing? Embarrassing? Um, doing these sorts of interviews, I suppose. Um, <laughs> that was Susan what, Eastman's answer, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. You wouldn't think that um, someone kind of drawn vocationally to um, to preaching and teaching would find public speaking embarrassing but i yeah one does one just does (laughs) uh and then do you have any uh hidden talents hidden talents oh goodness um i play a reasonably good recorder um and i'm not a bad euchre player like more than hot cross buns reasonably good recorder yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um for sure um what else i i learned how to curl when i was a student uh in in school, um, uh, kind of ice sheet curling, um, yeah, other the best, talents. the best Olympic sport. The, yes, it's a very fine <laughs> thing, and one of the things that I didn't have to change my sensibilities about moving to Scotland either. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I bake a mean apple crisp. How's that? Oh, That's excellent, it. excellent. So let's talk about the second part of your book, which in um, is longer than the first part of your book, because in the second part of your book, you're actually uh, working out how this apocalyptic framework impinges, as you've said, on these various um, issues in theology. Uh, I think, especially in terms of lordship, or those are the those are the, the chapters that I found really helpful: lordship and salvation. And the the second part you actually call Christ, Spirit, and Salvation in an apocalyptic key. Um, and you focus on Christ's lordship in this threefold office of Christ, which is to say that you're talking about Christ's kingly reign which you say is spiritual pr- precisely because it's eschatological. Um, so we have these three terms that uh, we don't always see together. We have apocalyptic and spiritual and eschatological. What do you mean that Christ's reign has to be conceived spiritually because it's eschatological? Yeah, good. Thanks for that. So the, 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 those terms are, 
arise in that chapter um, as a result of the way in which uh, reflection in the Protestant tradition, at least, on the nature of Christ's royal office um, has uh, tended to use the word spiritual to characterize that the nature of that office, the mode of that office. Um, and the force of that language in the tradition uh, is, I think, twofold. So one is one is that it, it, it's to differentiate it from earthly lordship, right? So Christ isn't just uh, one uh, political force among other political forces, right? So different in kind from earthly powers. That, I think, is, a, is an important, a fundamentally important uh, uh, point to be made. And the language of spiritual helps to draw that distinction. So there's spiritual and earthly. The temptation, or one of the things that that language is exposed to, though, is a misunderstanding that when you say spiritual, you mean un unreal, so ineffective, right? Earthly political kings and monarchs and rulers get stuff done, but the spiritual lordship of Christ is a kind of hazy corona that floats over things, uh, but without effect. Um, and uh, whatever the language of spiritual means, uh, I, I'm keen for it not to, to have that kind of misunderstanding attached to it. So to call it eschatological is the way that I wanted to suggest that the, that to speak about the lordship of Christ's or Christ's lordship as spiritual is to suggest that it's uh, it's manifest in the actual outworking of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, and that that work is eschatological, in the sense that it uh, it's the pressing home of the finality of the gospel uh, in the midst of lived existence, um, and so it's effective, right? I mean, the, that Christ's lordship isn't simply a kind of hazy corona, either floating above political events or, you know, in the, in the inner depths of my heart, um, uh, which doesn't impinge on the nature of the course of affairs in the world. I mean, quite, quite the opposite. The mode in which Christ's lordship impinges on on the world is spiritual in that it's the it's it it's worked out by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, in and beyond the scope of the church, in and beyond the scope of the Christian life. Um, so it's spiritual in the sense that it's not earthly, uh, not in competition, sort of equal competition with earthly powers, but sovereign over them. It's spiritual in the sense that it's, it's, it's the outworking or it's worked out by virtue of the activity, the ongoing activity of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit. That also means that it's present, right? It's not just something which happened in the past. There was a time when Christ sort of acted royally, uh, but now that that we we're not um, uh, that's not going on in the present. Quite quite the opposite. To call uh, that lordship spiritual is is one of the, one of the ways in which you speak about it as a present activity. Uh, that Christ is pr presently governing by 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 way of the Spirit, as it were. Sure, and then that bears directly on um, other other doctrines like our understanding of theological anthropology, because. Um, since to be human, as you say, and I'll quote you, to have is to have life in the body as a creature of this world. It is to be irrevocably knit into the fabric of the world and always and everywhere subject to rule. Um, so, so you've related Christ's dominion and indeed sin's dominion to anthropology, and I think that that, for me at least, was a very um, helpful way of thinking about that. And then you have this other turn with this rule, um, this, this language of, of reign and rule. Um, you say, basically, not only do we have these two um, possibilities of dominion, the false dominion of sin and then uh, the spiritual reign of Christ, but actually those two uh, lords have kind of enlisted 
uh, to use the military term, um, their human subjects into their service. And you have this, this term for Christians who have been enlisted. You have this term, the church militant, which is, I'm assuming, where you get militant or you're picking up militant grace, but that's a that's an idiosyncratic term. What do you? Um, and I have to say, one that I I maybe struggle with um, as uh, as woman with Anabaptist tendencies. Um, how do you? What do you mean by the church militant? Sure. So the yeah the the use of the word militant is an interesting uh, and a, a, a dangerous choice of terms for reasons you've you've intimated. Um, so. I think I, I'd like to say that the, that the primary predicate of the adjective militant here and in my thinking is grace. So it's primarily a way of characterizing divine activity, um, divine activity which is um, uh, 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 engaged, active, um, uh, powerful, effective on behalf of its um, captured and uh, captivated creature precisely uh, uh, for the purposes of redemption um, and that uh, that that grace comes comes against all which is antithetical to it in the world and so the militancy names the is a way of of, of uh, naming or calling out the shape of that of that divine activity as we as as we witness it to speak of the church mil militant. So in one sense, it's simply to use a very traditional term, which differentiates between the church triumphant, uh, i.e. the church in eschatological kind of glory and the church in its pilgrimage here. Um, you, well, one could speak e equally as well as, as uh, of the church as the pilgrim church. Um, I, I don't think these are uh, contradictory descriptions whatsoever. Um, the militancy of the church is uh, 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 whatever it, it means, it will mean in correspondence to the militancy of divine grace. So the kind of extraordinary uh, uh, power of, of self-giving, which is the basic form of divine activity, likewise the militant church is marked by a kind of surprising um, and um, surprisingly effective in the, in the gift of the spirit, uh, powerful acts of self-giving, which, which, uh, which win back, as it were, um, uh, uh, creatures from their captivity are, are undertaken actions which are undertaken in the service of of attesting. So witness and testimony are important concepts, as you would have seen, uh, uh, at, uh, attesting to that divine activity um, and serving it in the world. Um, so proclamation and service are militant insofar as they're um, they're caught up in God's own militancy for the salvation, redemption, the liberation and uh, 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 restoration of uh, of the lost creature um, the church the, the part of the church's calling kind of integral to the church's calling is is to be about its lord's business I suppose uh, to, to put it that way oh. um, yeah yeah that's well said and and kind of to follow up on this um, being about the lord's business uh, one of my favorite chapters of the book um, maybe because of my Anabaptist leanings, was uh, your chapter on Thy Kingdom Come, um, in which you argue that to pray Thy Kingdom Come, that prayer must be understood eschatologically in order for it to be intelligible at all. And um, in your words, to pray 
thy kingdom come faithfully means inhabiting an eschatological field shaped decisively by both Christological and apocalyptic coordinates. And that petitioning God in this, in just this way is properly constitutive of the very fundamentals of the Christian faith. So why Phil is thy kingdom come an essentially fundamentally eschatological prayer? So, um, the, the coming of the kingdom, um, uh, the the advent uh, of God's reign uh, uh, in and over the creation um, is the horizon of all Christian hope, um, and the prominence of of that theme in in the Lord's Prayer is striking, actually, um, and uh, not one which it's funny for all that that of course it's a commonplace it's perhaps because it's a commonplace that we we sort of lose the our our uh, our alertness to just how extraordinary that claim is um i think i i, I think i put at the head of that chapter that um as an epigraph that passage from the didache um which is also uh, taken from one of the prayers from chapter 10 of the didache um let grace come and let this world pass away um the the prayer for the kingdom of god in the lord's prayer i think materially is identical to the, to, to the force of that prayer from the Didache, or rather you might think of the Didache as, as offering a kind of expansive gloss on what it means to pray for the coming of the kingdom. Um, let this world pass away, this world being used in the very specifically Pauline sense of the world subject to the dominion of sin, death, and the devil. Um, let grace come. I mean, w- what it means to ask for the coming of grace, um, uh, I don't think that we we often appreciate how radical a transformation we we really are inviting uh, upon ourselves and upon the world in which we live when we when we utter such prayers. Um, so the force of that chapter was to try to recollect precisely that the the profound uh, eschatological um, ambition um, hope of that prayer and to s- suggest that we that we don't pray it lightly right it's it's uh, and precisely perhaps because it's a sort of piece of the furniture in uh in christian worship and piety uh, our 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 uh, awareness of the radicality of, of that for which we ask here um i think is easily eclipsed so yeah the 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 sort of ambition of that chapter was to try to surface that that sensibility again for us um uh, uh and to recommend that that precisely because that that prayer is a piece a piece of the furniture, the suggestion there is that this kind of expectation, this kind of hope, uh, this kind of longing, and the kind of life which is built in and around arises from this kind of longing is exactly the kind of of life and hope and longing that uh, should be the hallmark of the Christian life. Right. So that, that from its very beginning, you know, everything else that Christians are about is undertaken kind of in and under the horizon of prayer for the coming of of the kingdom of God um, uh, and hope for that coming. So the, the way that we orient, orient ourselves in every other, in, in everyday existence, the kind of ambitions we have for our responsibilities in the sphere of what the family or politics or what have you, that all all those things are what they are inside um, uh, and on the basis of what is fundamentally an eschatological orientation towards the advent of of the reign of God. Yeah, and and then you, um, and speaking of the Christian life, your third section of the book, you actually unpack some of um, some of how this kingdom ethic works out in apocalyptic in an apocalyptic key again. So um, I wonder if we could just skip. I know it, 
there's a lot that we're skipping on script listeners. I really would commend this by m one of my other favorite chapters that we don't really have time to talk about because it's kind of a, it's a complex and very um, elegant argument is um, the chapter on T.F. Torrance and Paul Lehman's view of natural law, which um, I found really interesting, especially since we're, you know, apparently two weeks from Brexit. Uh, and how <laughs> just um, thinking through those questions. But um, but Phil concludes his book with a chapter on discipleship. And, um, and in keeping with the rest of his book, he says that discipleship should be a distinctive evangelical militancy. So what kinds of things do you envision a disciple of the church militant, um, as you've just said, engaged in doing? Sure. Um, so I think the overarching th um, uh, uh, thought that I have about the nature of discipleship is that it's primarily about the business of giving truthful Christian witness to um, the the God apocalypsed in Jesus Christ. So um, not so much a question of doing the good as doing that which tells the truth about the God of the gospel and the world um, uh, 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 uh which is the creation, the saved and redeemed creation of that God. Um, and so um, I suppose the kinds of, it's the kinds of questions which I'm, I'm interested in, in uh, thinking about. If we th think about the basic Christian uh, ethos as an ethos of the discipleship, and we think of discipleship chiefly as trying to, to follow in the wake of that which God is, has done and is doing in the world, then the business of the Christian is chiefly to sort of, um, a, what, to, to discern and to it to uh, participate in way or to act in ways which which enact parables of that kingdom, right? To 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 live in ways which conform and which tell the truth about the lordship of Christ, which and therefore in their militant mode um, uh, uh, testify against the falseness of the lordship of sin, death, and the devil in all of the, their concrete forms. Now, the the difficulty. Uh, of course, is the move from what I, the way I've just described it there, which is a reasonably sort of high-level summation, down to the details of of that concrete discernment. But I think there's that's part of the business of Christian communities in their specific locations about you know kind of in, individual Christian lives lived out here and here and not there and there, um, and the business of preaching. Um, uh, to be sure, the business of individual prayerful, prayerful discernment. I mean, the, those are the sites where um, venturing concrete decisions about what 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 manner of living today in this place, uh, what way of disposing myself in the midst of this business discussion or that faculty meeting, God forbid, or um, you know this electoral cycle or what have you, uh, or in the face of this climate crisis or all you know all the pr the pressing things of our age. What kind of way of being a human being here tells the truth about the lordship of Christ? Um, you know, um, uh, uh, offers itself as an enactment of a parable of uh, the kind of grace that uh, has broken in upon the world to break it open and to free it from precisely the kind of inimical, uh, the structures of, of enmity, which are uh, the sort of default options uh, in the world governed by, uh, as it were, sin, death, and the devil. Um, the overcoming of enmity, the tearing in Paul's, uh, or pseudo-Paul, Paul, uh, the language of Ephesians, uh, the tearing down of the walls that divide. I mean, I think there, there were, we're not left without direction, kind of signposts as to the the shape of those activities uh, or or their direction of travel but um 
the thing that that I think this is this way of thinking has really enjoined upon me is the importance of that of that question of thinking about the Christian life as fundamentally parabolic. Right? Um, we're not bringing in the kingdom. It's too late for that. Um, that's God's about the business of bringing in the kingdom. Um, uh, the advent of God is precisely the context within which our own lives are to be set and understood, and um, our service to that um, uh, that for which we pray. The coming of the kingdom is is precisely to enact ever so human but genuine parables of the kingdom uh, in all of the places where we actually find ourselves um, and so that I myself at least have found that one of the real sort of uh, profound upshots of this way of th- thinking along with with these readers of Paul um, uh, to, to sort of change the way that I think about the nature of Christian ethics um, uh, at kind of as a discourse but then more concretely, the shape of the Christian life. What what kinds of ways, when I preach, what for, for instance, what kinds of ways am I um, uh, speaking about uh, and encouraging pe- 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 people to reflect on and conceive of their own Christian existence in the world? Um, it seems to me it makes a difference if we think of ourselves as trying to kind of achieve the good uh, or if we think of ourselves as, as trying to um, uh, uh, live in ways which tell the truth about the one who, who has... Um, made us his own, uh, and whose lordship we we uh, um, uh, we endeavor to 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 serve truthfully in the world. The, the, that way of the, the way we speak about the, the kind of fundamental language with which I want to talk about the Christian life um, uh, has sh- shifted over the course of this decade uh, in in no small part under pressure from these kinds of ways of reading Paul. And I'm 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 extraordinarily grateful f- for that, and I think that there's something, there's some real salutary elements in that kind of way of thinking about mm-hmm. the, the Christian life. So. Yeah, and I think, I think I would just point out that as as um, as academically lucid as this book is, and it is that, uh, it is also profoundly practical, uh, and it and it's a. I appreciated so much that you ended with this um, this exposition of Christian ethics because it offers such a. a a concrete challenge um, to the reader to how we begin not only to think about Christian ethics, but actually to live as kingdom subjects. So Phil, are you ready for our final speed round? Most certainly. Okay. More off the wall questions. Okay. Uh, okay. Star Trek, Star Wars, or neither? Oh, Star Trek actually. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> what incredibly common thing have you never done? What incredibly common thing have I never done? Um, I've never swam more than two lengths of a swimming pool. Oh, wow. Um, and you live in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's dangerous. Very dangerous indeed. Um, what food or food combination do you absolutely love that other people find strange? Hmm. Um, I'm actually drawn to the black pudding burger as a thing here in Scotland. Um, and not everyone finds the addition of black pudding to anything, uh, an attractive <laughs> option, but, uh, <laughs> I can understand why that would be. Yeah. Well, I'll have to tell my husband about that. He loves, he loves black pudding. Okay. We've talked a lot about Satan and death and the devil. So Phil, if Satan had a soundtrack, what song would be on repeat in hell? Oh gosh. (laughs) I suppose it, it, it depends whether we're, we're, we're imagining it's kind of, Satan wanting to enjoy the music that he plays himself, or whether he just wants to torment those who are with him. Wait, are um, those mutually exclusive? 
Probably. Well, no, but they might be different. I, let's go with the s- second. Assuming that the devil's only interest is tor- is sheer the sheer <laughs> torment of those who are there, I would think a kind of of endless Muzak versions of 1980s tunes <laughs> would probably be the, the 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 music best designed to engender the kind of suffering that the devil would have an interest in. Wait, wait. So so just to be clear, <laughs> listeners, I think uh, what Phil is saying is that the hold music for most um, most call centers, call centers and, yes. is Satan's soundtrack. I, I think that's pretty much right. It is it is a manifestation <laughs> of sin, death, and the devil. Um, I, yeah yeah there so, are <laughs> the, there are anti parables of the kingdom. Uh, to, to be found, and that may well be one of them. Oh, okay, okay. What's something you wish was illegal? Something I wish were illegal. Um, gosh, um, I'm going to pass on that. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I can't conjure anything. Um, oh, okay. Uh, at the minute, that's disappointing. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be something you, you can think about. Uh, maybe the next time you're on hold at a call center. I'll, I'll imagine. In fact, perhaps being put on hold at a call center might might well be the kind of thing that might There's be. There's sanctions. Made, it's like a civil penalty. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. This is our. There are two final questions in on script. Are um, they're pretty standard if you if you've listened before, um, and you can name names for the first one. And you don't have to name names for the second one, and either way is fine. So the first question that we always ask um, at the end of an interview is, what is the most important work in theology or biblical studies in the past 50 years? Hmm. Gosh, I mean, there are lots of candidates, aren't there, for those for that kind of um, acclamation. Um, I think for me, if I could put it like this, um, I... I would like to suggest, and we haven't talked about this um, in the context of, of this particular discussion, but I think the work that's gone into producing the, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works, the critical edition of the Bonhoeffer works, I think that is one of the one of the real th- um, theological uh, or uh, pub- publishing achievements in the in, in in the realm of theology in the last fifty years, to be sure. Um, the, the production of that project, vast as it is, and the importance of of those texts for the ongoing discussion, reception, and responsible uh, discussion and reception of Bonhoeffer, I think is immense. Um, and their they're simultaneous, almost simultaneous rendering in English also, um, I think it's been a game changer. So that's, yeah, that that would be one thing that I think I might Great. take out. And what is one idea in theology that you think needs to go the way of the dodo bird, that needs to become extinct and die? <laughs> um, gosh. There are um, there are all kinds of ways in which one might think about participation um, that I might like to think um, would pass away. Um, that's a category that can mean a whole lot of things, but but there's some there's some extraordinarily interesting uh, debate about the value or the limitations of that way of thinking. And I, I, I uh, getting that right would be an achievement. And if we got that right, there'd be a lot that we would have to set set aside. Okay. So l- let me offer that as a thought. Okay. Okay. Well, friends, that's all the time we have for today. We've been chatting with Philip Ziegler about his book Militant Grace, which you can purchase on Amazon. And it's even better if you click on. On our Amazon link uh, on the OnScript page because the Amazon gives us a tiny percentage of the sale which helps uh, support the ongoing work of OnScript. So thanks for listening. Thanks Phil for being with us today and we'll see you next time. 
You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.